name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Short disclaimer. When we recorded this episode... At one point, um, we referred to the Tulsa Race Massacre as the Tulsa Race Riot. Um, Back then, I just want to tell you, like, this is not something that was taught in Oklahoma history classes. We had to learn these things on our own. And we know now that the Tulsa Race Riot was, in fact, not a riot. It was a race massacre. So going forward, when you hear us refer to the the Tulsa race riot, please know we know better now and show us some grace. So between 1942 and 1948, five Tulsa women were killed as they slept. Each of their bodies had been sexually assaulted after death. All of the crimes occurred in an area known today as the Brady Arts District. In a couple of these cases, the killer actually took the time after killing these women to go into these women's kitchens and make himself food before leaving the house and like eating it. So today we're talking about the Tulsa Northside Killer, 1940s, 20 years before this Tulsa serial killer was the Tulsa race riots. I want you to keep that in mind. July 10th, 1942, Helen Brown, a redheaded 19-year-old wife of Mr. William Brown, a Tulsa trucker, was strangled and raped in the 900 block of North Main Street in her apartment on the Tulsa's north side. The Brady Arts District. So yeah, I mean, there's theaters and actually the Brady Theater is where we went and saw Tenacious D this last go around. Y'all, she loves Jack Buck. I love him <laughs> so much. I love him so much. But yeah, I mean, it's still, it's a bustling place today and it wasn't so much so back then like obviously it wasn't the arts district back then and I don't know if maybe they kind of built this reputation to get over what had happened in the 40s I'm not really sure how it's completely flipped the the script on us but this woman was pregnant at the time she was six days from delivering her baby Because you can clearly, it's not like she was in her first trimester where you can't see that. You know what I mean? Right. And she was in her own home, by the way. I mean, it makes me wonder if he knew that the husband was like a trucker. You know what I mean? Like he would be gone. Well, 
that is possible. He was a trucker. He was away at the time. And the MO for this guy was to break in via a window, usually break in via a window and go inside and wait until the women were asleep in their beds and would strike them with a blunt object until they were dead. And then he would have his way with their bodies. And in, in this case, he actually went into the kitchen and made himself a meal of sausage and toast before he left. Just like super nonchalant. That one was classified as a double homicide. So six months went by. Then Miss Clara Stewart, who was 48, and her daughter, Georgia Green, who was 31. I know you're doing the math in your head, but this was the 40s. I mean, it was the 40s. Yeah. And also, I have also seen other places that said that she was 50 and some that she was 52 and some that she was 48. And because it was the 40s, I mean, I don't really know how to verify yeah, that. Yeah, no kidding. Really? So, Clara Stewart and Georgia Green, they were in their home, asleep in their beds, when they were murdered in a similar fashion. Their bodies touched inappropriately. Let's just say that afterwards. So, they were actually sharing an apartment in the general neighborhood, and this happened in July, while Georgina's husband... Now, see here, it says Georgina and Georgia, so, you know, the 40s, whatever. Her husband actually served in the army, and she was staying with her mother while her husband was overseas. Like, he was literally serving in World War II at the time, when she was murdered. Just knowing that she was at home alone, on the edge of town either pregnant or raising a baby, he was gone for the foreseeable or unforeseeable future, however you want to, you know. Yeah. So there's this man off to war at a really high risk of not coming back, and it's her that doesn't make it. Like, that's brutal. Her mother as well. Could you imagine going, you and your mother going through this together and neither of you making it? Like, one of you had to watch the other one go, you know what I mean? Like, I can't even think about that. In this instance, the killer cooked and ate seven scrambled eggs and toast before he left. He's going in at night, around midnight, okay? He goes in and he murders them, however long it takes to murder them. Then he has his way with them until literally breakfast, until literally sun up. Then he makes himself breakfast and he leaves. That's his M.O. And these two women were also redheads. Oh, oh my God. He's He's got a thing. Wow. This next murder is the only one that there was ever any outcry about or any like outrage, I guess you could say at the time. This one, it was like, oh, no, that did not happen to her. We need to solve this right now. Maybe they didn't realize that they had a pattern on their hands until this one. That could be. And also, you think about the Tulsa North Side back then, and a lot of the like apartment complexes and stuff there housed prominently women because a lot of them worked in like the factories and stuff here, the war factories, and a lot of their husbands were either away working or overseas or stuff like that, so... And because of that, I have way more detail on this murder than any of the others. The first murder took place 1942, July 1942. Then six months went by, early 
1943. The other two occurred. And then you have almost two and a half years before the next one. Morning of May 15, 1945, 5.30 a.m., a nurse called the detective squad of the Tulsa Police Department to report an ominous conversation she had over the phone. The nurse had tried to call her roommate to wake her up for her job at the Douglas Aircraft Co. plant. It was a war plant. The nurse asked police to go to the apartment, was 501 North Cheyenne Avenue, that she shared with 20-year-old Pat Campbell, who also went by Pantaloo Lyles. So Pantaloo was described as a very pretty redhead whose sailor husband was serving in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, yep. 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 So he was also overseas. She was a, also a pretty redhead. Police went to the apartment. They found the front door slightly ajar. They went inside and they found the bludgeoned body of Miss Lyles sprawled in her bed with clothing and bedding piled over her face. The contents of her purse were dumped out, but nothing of value had been taken. The killer apparently had entered her first floor apartment through a torn kitchen window screen. County physician Dr. Jeff Billington reported later that Miss Lyles had died at around 3 a.m. of skull fractures resulting from repeated blows to the head. So again, bludgeoning with a blunt force weapon. He said probably a piece of heavy pipe was used. She was murdered as she slept and after she was dead, the killer criminally assaulted her. At the Lyles crime scene, police found strands of gray hair and grease smudges on the bed sheets, but no fingerprints. So Pantaloo was a young married woman. She was 20 years old, the wife of a soldier. She was brutally murdered by some unknown assailant while she slept alone in her bedroom of her apartment. The murderer had gained entrance through this window in the kitchen. She had this little three-bedroom apartment. And the window in the kitchen was found open after the murder was discovered. He may have made his exit through a door leading from the bedroom into the hall of the apartment because the door was slightly open at an angle of about 30 degrees when the police officers arrived. Upon entering the bedroom, the murderer apparently assaulted Miss Lyles hit her on the head, which rendered her immediately unconscious, from which she eventually died. Miss Lyles shared her apartment with Miss Seaburn, the nurse who called, who worked at night and slept in, in the daytime. And apparently this woman and the victim were like really good friends, and she called her every morning to wake her up, like a wake-up call, literally, to wake her up for work. Oh, that's so sweet. And that morning, she called about 5.10. At first, no one answered. So she called back five minutes later. Someone answered the phone. When she called, a gruff voice answered the phone and told her to call back later. Apparently, someone she'd never heard before. What? She said it could have been either the voice of a man or a woman. She became suspicious when the voice failed to properly answer a trick question that she had asked them. Jesus, this woman is sharp. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. I love it. I, I don't know what that trick question was. I looked all over the place. But, I mean, you know, if these girls were really, really good friends, it could have been a number of things right. that 
So she called police almost immediately. She just, she hung up on, on the voice. She didn't like wait around to see what happened. She, she hung up and called police. If I'm living in this district with a redheaded girl and I know that four redheaded girls have been murdered in the same area around this time of night and I'm not home. So my redheaded roommate's home alone. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Because women get pretty clued in on things because we notice everything Mm -hmm. to an annoying extent. But also, this is 1945. We didn't even have the name serial killer back then so i mean a lot of people didn't really know to look for patterns like this and then of course you had the black dahlia around this time but i mean you know women have always had to be vigilant let's just say that so this woman was pretty dang sharp for you know just kind of immediately knowing something wasn't right but here's the thing so she called police at 5 10 a.m they were not dispatched until 5.38 a.m. I'm not surprising. Of course, I don't know how police worked back in the day. Um, you know, they found the door leading into Miss Lyle's apartment from the hall open. Their flashlight revealed, because it was still early in the morning, revealed the beaten and half-exposed dead body of Mrs. Lyle's lying on her bed. They found the drawers in the dresser open and things were thrown out of them as though burglary had been the motive for the crime. But it didn't look like anything was taken. So thereafter, the police took numerous photographs of the crime scene. No fingerprints were found. Some means of positive evidence leading to the identification of the murderer was sought. So this is where I'm kind of impressed. Because they actually found a few pieces of evidence that I didn't even know they looked for in the 40s like hair evidence and stuff like that. In this case, they did microscopic hair comparison in 1945. That's kind of crazy. That's nuts. So they called in the dogs. In an effort to connect someone with the crime, the police brought in Ranger, a bloodhound from the city's kennel. I know. The dog was taken to the scene of the crime, picked up the trail, went across the alley, across from a vacant lot into the back of a building at 512 North Boulder, which is around the corner from the place where the crime was committed. But the trail ended there. That could be a number of reasons. Someone couldn't could have gotten into a vehicle, you know, anything. But they were frustrated because they didn't find anyone immediately. So Tulsa police and Tulsa County investigators started rounding up known sex offenders and they filled the jail with possible suspects. They checked out hundreds of tips, false leads, rumors, all to no avail. The World and the Tribune put up a $500 reward following the Lyles murder, and the state of Oklahoma added $1,000 in 1945. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I find I find it fascinating to relate uh, laws and things to like what we have now, and especially prices. And I saw in 1942, the cost of a new house was $3,775. Yep. A new car was $920. Mm-hmm. And if your kid was smart enough, you could get him into Harvard University for $420 a year. Whoa! And girl, we, we only say him because girls weren't admitted as undergraduates until 1973. Jeez. Harvard was a boys-only school. Ugh, bleh. 
Anyways, to relate that reward money to half of a house. Yeah, you could have had a real badass down payment for a house. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Nothing really turned up from it, which is kind of sad. So the police, still being without a clue as to who the identity of the murderer was, apparently started searching court records for a likely suspect. Most potential suspects, having been previously convicted of rape, were called. There was a, na a man named Leroy Benton. He was 33 years old. He was a black man. He had previous charges. And one of his friends told him that they were, the police were rounding up people who had records and were wanting to talk to everybody that they could. So this man went down to the police station voluntarily, I might add, to speak with police on May 22nd, 1945. So remember the murder happened May 15th. He found out the 22nd and he went down immediately. Without any charge being lodged against him, he was immediately placed under arrest and imprisoned. Number one, he was not informed of the reason. Was he informed of his then immediate constitutional rights to even have a lawyer? Oh my God. Later on that day, he was taken from his cell to Captain Stieg's office, where he was then accused point blank of the commission of the murder and rape of Mrs. Lyles, which he positively denied. Man, Leroy. That's why I say, remember, 20 years prior was the Tulsa race riots. Tulsa was still very on edge about the colored community. I have a feeling that that plays a very large role. The Tulsa race riot centered around what they called back then Black Wall Street. Okay. Basically, for everyone out there, the black people in Tulsa were doing really, really well for themselves. Oh, we can't have that. Exactly. They were owning businesses. They were making money. And uh, that's pretty much the, the basis of it. Oh yeah. my God. So I, I have a feeling that this is a big reason. Uh, racism, just straight up racism is a big reason why he was just immediately placed under arrest. At least racial profiling. I don't know how to find records for that long ago, like, um, like rap sheets for that, that long ago. So I couldn't tell you if he had a rap sheet for rape or attempted rape or if it was just assault. But I will say that half of those rap sheets were bogus back then because of racial profiling. I mean, you could basically say anything you wanted to a, a white man and they'd be like, oh yeah, I back that up. Just go ahead and put him in jail, whether they did it or not. God, I hate that so much. I don't know if he actually did anything. Poor Leroy. Get this. He was put into an extended interrogation room from May 22nd to June 5th. What? He was never advised of his constitutional rights, his Miranda rights, or warned that anything that he could say would be used against him in the event of a subsequent trial. He attempted to account for his whereabouts on the night of May 14th, on the night of the murder. They're in there grilling him. They want to know where he was and what he was doing the night that Pantaloo Lyles was murdered. I'm going to also add that they never asked him about the previous three. Just Pantaloo. 
During all of this period, he was not permitted to communicate with anyone. He couldn't leave the room. There were times when they wouldn't even let him use the restroom. He couldn't see his relatives. They never offered him an attorney, told him he could could have one. He didn't even know that he could ask for one. Oh, my God. So, in a further effort to obtain clues, at the scene of the crime, the officers had removed a bloody pillowcase, the bloody upper half of the sheet, the lower half of the sheet, a nightgown, the panties that the victim had wore, and other articles from the bed, including debris from the sheet, sent them to the Division of Identification of the FBI. A Officer Benson eventually testified that he made a trip on Sunday morning, June 3rd, to Benton's room and found a pair of Benton's pajamas hanging in the clothes closet. These pajamas were then sent to the Division of Identification of the FBI as well. While they are unlawfully detaining this man and trying to get a confession out of him, they are also raiding his home to try to find evidence against him. I'm assuming you didn't need a search warrant back then, but then again, I mean, these people aren't playing by the rules anyways. Don't know. What I do know is that Miranda versus Arizona wasn't until 1966, and that's what uh, nationalized the Miranda warnings, Miranda rights. Right. I know that Gideon versus Wainwright was in 1963, and that is what nationalized the uh, right to an attorney. But each state had their own ways of doing things. It just wasn't precedent I guess you could say so I don't know I feel like if you're gonna do a search warrant and go ransack someone's home like let me sit there you're gonna go through my house let me sit there I want to see every damn thing you do and where you find it you know what I mean the FBI made an examination of these things and discovered hair on the bed sheet taken from Miss Lyle's room this is the gray hair one they found a gray hair and here's the thing Man, I'm, I feel like this was planted because I told you they found a gray hair and then all of a sudden they found a quote-unquote negroid hair. What the fuck kind of word is that? Why does that even exist? Oh, okay. I don't know. It says they discovered a quote-unquote negroid hair and one very short red hair. Oh my ass. Like, I feel like that was straight up planted. They said that they also found a red, a short red hair on the pajamas of Benton. Uh-huh. So he, he did this in his pajamas and they don't have blood on them. Correct. Okay. <laughs> I mean, to, to, I mean, makes sense. But he got one single short red hair on them. <laughs> and I'll go on to say that, so I'm getting this from Benton versus State, by the way. Uh, it goes on to say that the red hair was one fiftieth of an inch in length, barely visible to the naked eye. It was so small that it was not possible to determine what part of the body with accuracy that it even came from. That is, whether it was a body hair, pubic hair, or head hair. The black hair that they had found, supposedly found at the crime scene, said that it possessed, quote-unquote, negroid characteristics and which was found on the bed clothing of the victim we cannot state that this questioned hair came from the victim we can merely state 
that they are similar in color. The medulla is similar. The diameter in this particular hair is approximately the same. Therefore, it could have come from that source. Again, it could have come from any other source. That was the examiner. It could have been Queen Elizabeth. We don't really know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the police took it as, well, you said that it could have, so it is. Oh my God. In addition, he said that though there were similarities in that small fragment of hair with the victims, there were also many dissimilarities because it was so small, he could not tell from what portion of the body it came. Well, they want him to go down so bad, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they, they needed a scapegoat because, I mean, you're looking at, you need to solve. You need people to not be panicked. You, you know, it's one of those situations like, and if you're already racist, I mean, it's just really sad. Let me bring you a little light to this, though. And this is pretty cool. He went to trial. But later, when he eventually appealed this, he did get a defense attorney. And he was defended by Amos T. Hall and B.C. Franklin, who were two Tulsa attorneys who established distinguished careers in advancing civil rights for minorities. Hall and and future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Oh, shit. Right? Led the fight that forced the University of Oklahoma to admit Ada Lewis Fisher as the first black person in its law school in 1949. Hall also became the first elected black judge in Oklahoma in 1970. Franklin, on the other hand, had represented black property owners following the 1921 Tulsa race riots. He was the father of late historian, author, and professor John Hope Franklin, for whom a Tulsa Park memorializing the race riot is named, which I think that's that's pretty cool. So there's a little light at the end of the tunnel. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> and Thurgood Marshall was a badass. God, he was so cool. So anyway, going back. So June 4th, 1945, Benton was taken to the office of Captain Steig, where he was questioned. He was held for this prolonged amount of time. Here's the thing, too, though. In order to try to get his confession, this captain, along with several other police officers, staged a fake mob demonstration outside, for which he told Benton that if he didn't confess, he could not save him from the lynching mob. The face I continue to make is making my head hurt. There were officers literally outside pretending to be a fake lynching mob. Jesus Christ. Benton could hear them outside. He, they got a confession out of him because he was scared that if they let him out and he walked out the front doors, he was going to be dragged off. Yeah, of course. And they kept telling him, well, you know, if you just confess, then you'll be in our custody and they can't get to you. So, after his confession, because Tulsa didn't have a lie detector machine, and I don't know why they needed a lie detector test, but they wanted one, they shipped him off to Kansas City, Missouri for testing. And he was charged on June 13th, 1945, with killing Pantaloo Lyles. <laughs> he was tried by Oklahoma County Attorney Dixie Gilmer. During the trial... So, Miss Seaburn was called upon to testify during the trial, which Miss Seaburn was the nurse who had called Pantaloo that morning or tried to call her that morning. 
Of course, she said either it could be a man or a woman. She wasn't sure what the voice sounded like. She said that it for sure was not Mrs. Lyles, but it was not identified by her as the voice of the defendant either. After the defendant's arrest, the county attorney advised him that a telephone call would be placed to him and he would be asked a question and the county attorney would tell him what to answer. Miss Seaburn was to call him and ask him the same trick question over the telephone under the instruction from the county attorney to see if she would get the same answer from the defendant that she got the night of the murder. That's how they, I guess, determined if it was his voice or not. What the f- Okay. Wouldn't he be on to that? You would think so. I mean, he's going to remember you asking that question if it is him. And he might answer yeah. it differently knowing he's about to put his ass in a sling if he doesn't. I don't know. There's so many things wrong with it. This didn't play well for the prosecution. And they were just kind of like, eh. Well, let's just forget about that one then. In the case of the hair, they brought in a couple expert witnesses, one being Dr. Leon August Hossman, who lived in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He was a professor in Rutgers University, a contributor to Encyclopedia Britannica and numerous scientific publications, as well as to the files of the FBI on the subject of hair identification, testing for the defense, using as the basis for his testimony the same hair used by Mr. Duggins of the FBI. He basically did his own analysis. So he says, as to the identification of the red hair found on the pajamas of the defendant, he testified positively that it was his judgment that it did not come from the body of the victim. He further testified in relation to the African-American hairs found in the debris on the sheet of the victim's bed, that it was in his opinion that those hairs and the hair taken from the defendant could not have come from the same source. His reason was that the hair on the sheet was larger in diameter and so lightly pigmented, basically too light to be the defendant's hair. And the hair of the defendant in comparison was much smaller and so much more heavily pigmented than they could not have been from the same source. So many people have been convicted on hair, and one of them was literally exonerated because the hair he got convicted on was dog hair. That was in the 80s. So I'm just saying, we're still using this bullshit. This guy said that it was not a match. They had another expert witness for the prosecution come in and say that it was a match. They also talked about the bloodhound. This came from the appeal. And this is his badass defense attorneys basically saying that the dogs at the time caught the trail of something, but it did not lead them to the defendant. They decided not to use any of that as evidence against him when they sent him to trial. And the defense attorney is saying they didn't bring up the dogs in the trial because it didn't fit their agenda. Because if they had brought up the dogs in the trial, it would have helped the defendant in saying that he wasn't anywhere near this. So basically the dog's trail ran cold. So there was no use for them in court. But the defense is saying that it could have been used by the defendant to show that he wasn't near the crime scene and that the dogs didn't lead the police to him. 
But that evidence was obviously denied to the defendant. Obviously. There's so much injustice in in all of this. There's also a lot of basic human rights that were denied to the defendant. Oh, yeah. Violations left and right. Yeah. Regardless of all of that, he was convicted on November 17th, 1945 and sentenced to life imprisonment. Are you... (sighs) (sighs) That's not where it stops, though. So a lot of things, because Leroy Benton represented himself in his trial. He did not know that he could have an attorney. He did not know his rights, and no one informed him of his rights. So immediately after he was sent to prison, there are people in there telling him, uh, yeah, you know, a bunch of that was violations. You need an attorney and you need to appeal. So he got those two badass attorneys. They appealed for him like as soon as possible. There was a lot of things that were brought up in the appeal that were never brought up at trial or any time before that. And I'm going to tell you about some stuff. Okay. So... When Benton appealed, his attorney, Amos Hall, argued that he had been coerced, that he had been threatened with mob violence, and that he had been charged, they had used sweat box methods to obtain his confession. The state attempted to palliate their procedure by saying that he was in no way whatsoever abused or beaten, and that he was treated nicely. But Benton's attorneys collected a lot of evidence one of those being the medical examination of Miss Lyles. An exam of her private parts revealed that she had been raped, though it's a known fact that she entertained a married gentleman friend that night. This is, this is things that the defense attorneys found when they were doing this appeal. Oh, dear. What do we mean entertained? Oh, you know what I mean. Oh! A married man... Who wanted to remain anonymous. You think? And all throughout this appeal, he is referred to as Mr. K. Oh. And apparently he was there until past midnight. When they did the medical examination, it was kind of hard to tell if she was, it was just sexual intercourse that she had that night or if she had been raped. But in the first trial, the prosecution didn't care. And they had removed some male semen taken from the secretion of the vulva of her body. The record didn't reveal whether an analysis of the semen was made. They never compared the semen to anyone. One would think people are in tune with the rhythm method by this time. And a married man wouldn't leave his potentially impregnating fluid in his mistress. But I mean, and I... Don't know if condoms were. I mean, I know that they had, uh, what is it, like sheepskin or whatever condoms back then, but I honestly don't know how many people use them in the 40s. I don't know anything about condoms and the, I don't know. <laughs> so I, so I don't know if it was a common practice to like keep a, keep a condom in your wallet. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but the fact is, is that there was semen found inside of her and they didn't compare it to anyone not even the defendant and in the appeal the attorney is saying if he had had an attorney and if it had been me and I had that information I would have tested it against my client and the male suitor that she had had that night but we were not even allowed to have that he wasn't allowed to have that information so 
there was no way that he could have known that that's something that he needed to do. They withheld all of this evidence and information from him just because because they wanted him to go down for it. Plain and simple. Yeah. After all of this stuff that he brought up in the appeal, he brought up the fact that they denied his right to counsel. They had an unnecessary delay in taking him before a magistrate. I mean, there's there's so many things. Violation of due process, violation of Miranda. I mean, just so much. And I have his confession. I'm going to read some of okay. it. And it's uh, kind of sad. The whole situation makes me sad. Real sad. And very infuriating. Yes. Have you seen the definition of the word justice? Not to mention that during this time, there is a freaking serial killer still running around on the streets. The actual guilty party is still out there. From his appeal, he says, During the questioning by Mr. Stieg, I heard some noises on the outside. I couldn't say whether they were shots or what they were, but to me they seemed and sounded like shots. I said to Mr. Stieg, What is that? Mr. Stieg goes to the door and comes back and he says, Probably that damn mob. I've been told all along about a mob by different officers, and I became frightened. And Mr. Stieg says to me, Well, we done all we can to save you, and you are just acting stubborn and act like you don't care whether you get mobbed or what happens to you. We want to protect you, and we want you to come clean and tell us what you know about this homicide. I told him I didn't know anything about it, and I was doing all I could to help the investigation. Oh my god. After this, he's questioned by his attorney. So there'll be a question and an answer. So, question. When Mr. Stieg told you that it was a mob, did you actually believe that it was a mob? He says, I actually did. Yes, sir. He says, did you become frightened? He said, yes, sir, I did. At about 2.30 in the afternoon on June 4th, he was taken to the police chief's office, Stieg's office, where he said he was questioned by several officers until approximately 7.30 p.m. At this time, he was taken from the chief's office to the county attorney's office in the courthouse, where he again was questioned all night by substantially the same people who had been questioning him during the day. This ordeal lasted from about 8 in the evening until about 7.30 the next morning. He said that during that period of interrogation, he was not given food, rest, or allowed any sleep, but was subjected to a continuous barrage of questions. It was during that time that they had that telephone conversation with Miss Seaburn, of course, upon which she could not identify him. But this ordeal being unfruitful, he was then taken back to the police station to room 206, where he met Mr. Robbins, another police officer, who had no part in the prior questioning. And during that time, he had been in the county attorney's office. Room 206 had been especially prepared with enlarged pictures, two or three feet high, all around the room, depicting the scene of the crime and the murdered victim in detail. Bitten said there was a chair sitting in the middle of the room and over it was hanging a big light. He was seated in the chair while being questioned. While he was talking to Mr. Robbins, another fake mob demonstration was had on the outside of room 206. 
He says, during that time, I heard some noises out in the hall. It sounded like scuffling around, somebody scuffling. And I said, Mr. Robbins, there's some noises out in the hall. Do you know what they are? And he said, no, I don't, but I'll go see. He went to the door and I heard him holler down the hall. You keep them down there and I will take care of this boy up here. What the hell? He questions him again and he says, now, Leroy, was it in your mind that there was a mob out there? And he says, yes, sir, it was. He says, I think you stated a while ago that all the officers have been telling you from time to time that you were going to be mobbed and lynched. And he says, Mr. Robbins told me when he came back, he said, that's the mob. Looks like you are going to get it. We are just getting tired of fooling with you. And it looks like you just want to get mobbed. He said, now you come clean and tell us about all of this. You'll be lucky to go to trial. And even if you do get a trial, you'll be, you'll be mobbed. So will your attorneys. What the? F- <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's like hard to process. He says, after that, what did you say to Mr. Robbins? He says, well, I became afraid. And I said, Mr. Robbins, if I say that I did it and later on you find the real murderer, what will you do about getting me out of the penitentiary? Mr. Robbins answered me. He said, Leroy, if such a thing does happen, I will spend the balance of my life trying to get you out of the penitentiary. I will even go to the county attorney and do all I can to get you out if it costs me my job. Mm. He says, then what did you say? He says, I told him to call the county attorney that I'd confess. Mr. Robbins corroborates Benton's testimony that he would assist him in, in obtaining his release from the pen if the real murderer was found. So he knew that he wasn't the guy. Oh, my God. And his attorney says, did Mr. Robbins say anything to you about the death weapon? He says, well, from the time I told him to call the county attorney and the time Mr. Sims got over here, which is another officer, we had a discussion and I asked him, I said, Mr. Robbins, what if Mr. Gilmore asks me? What I hit the woman with, what am I supposed to say? And he said, well, from the looks of the wounds on the woman's head, I would suggest you tell them you used a pipe. Holy. Are you kidding me? He told me, he said, of course, you don't have to say anything to the county attorney concerning the suggestions I made to you. You just leave him to think that this was all your idea. Talk about feeding someone a confession. This poor man. Mr. Gilbert, the county attorney, finally arrived at at room 206 and the defendant said, with the aid of the pictures and with what the officers had suggested to him during the long night of inquisition from May 22nd to June 5th, he began to try and reconstruct the crime scene. He says, what happened when you began to tell him about the scenes? He says, well, I thought Mr. Gilmer was going to come over and ask me if I did it. And I would say yes, and that would be all there was to it. Mr. Gilmer asked me several questions that were confusing, and naturally I looked around trying to get some information as to the answer of the questions from the pictures. Mr. Gilmer noticed that and walked over and turned the pictures to face the wall. This is a quote from Benton's defense attorney. The striking feature which this case presents is that though a confession was hoped for, labored for, and anticipated after the grueling interrogations, a stenographer was not even used to reduce the writing, not one word, of what the defendant said when he gave his confession. 
So no one even wrote down a word what he said. The officers didn't make any attempt. They were just basically like, oh yeah, he confessed. They took the defendant from there to Okmulgee, where they placed him in jail there to make the defendant believe it was to avoid mob violence, but where a renewed attempt to obtain another confession was made. They then took him from Okmulgee to Kansas City, where he was subjected to the lie detector test. The record does not show the result, but like the use of Old Ranger the Bloodhound, if it had been favorable, the state would not have discarded it. So then they took the defendant to McAllister, where in another final effort to get another confession, this conduct of the officers is without legal justification. It reflects upon the character of the defendant's alleged confession and that the state's belief as to its validity. If it had not been induced by fear of mob violence, if it had not been obtained under duress, apparently the officers were seeking a second confession free from qualifications. In this connection, the attitude of the county attorney, Mr. Gilmer, police chief Hyatt, and Officer Benton, following the so-called confession, casts a shadow of doubt upon the validity of the entire proceeding and their undisclosed knowledge in relation to it. It lends credence to the testimony of the defendant. Not one of those people took the stand when they had initially put him on trial. The officers? The interrogators, the police chiefs, the officers, the attorneys. No one testified in his trial. You have a confession. These people are saying you have a confession. You did not write down this confession. No one knows what the confession actually entails. And no one was ever put on the stand to testify at to the confession. <laughs> How does any of this, like, make any sense? How could you get a conviction from that? They found a decent little loophole in their good old boy system by not making them lie under oath. They had to have known that at some point the bottom was going to fall out of this. This is ridiculous. It's like holding water in your hands. Benton's defense attorney said they were willing to accept the fruits of this procedure, but unwilling to support it with their own testimony. Well said. He cited many, many, many violations that I could go on and on about. I mean, I have... He cited things from Judge Jones and Presley versus State and all kinds of stuff. By this time, it's 1948. And it was, there was so much there of violations in this that, like, they just couldn't be ignored. So, Benton was released on March 4th, 1948. He was only in prison for three years. I feel like he shouldn't have been in prison for any years, but good job on the attorneys because usually the appeals process on a conviction is forever a hell of a deal. Yeah, really well handled by these attorneys. He was released on March 4th, 1948. He immediately went to Hammond, Indiana to live with his uncle. He eventually got married to a woman named Dorothy Balance in 1959. Aww. They moved to Chicago. They adopted twin girls. Aww. I mean, he, he he had a pretty fulfilled life after that. He worked for Kaiser Aluminum for more than 20 years and was a longtime parisher of St. Dorothy's Catholic Church in Chicago. And according to his obituary, he was born in Idabel, Oklahoma. He spent his formative years in Tulsa and he attended Booker T. Washington High School. Benton died in 1998 
leaving behind daughters Jacqueline Baldwin and Jocelyn James, three grandchildren and a host of friends. He was 82 years old. Oh, good for him. He lived a really full life. A little rocky there for a while, but... Yeah, just really unfortunate. And here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. (laughs) It does for him, and that's great. But what about the women? Do they ever get justice? Well, here's the thing. July 2nd, 1948, which was four months before Benton was released from jail. Benton is still in jail at this point. An apartment tenant in the 200 block of West Easton Street was awakened at 2.30 a.m. by a rapping sound and a scream at a neighboring unit. Police arrived to find a woman named J.B. Cole, her 13-year-old daughter Doris Cole, and the daughter's friend, 14-year-old LaVon Gabbard, battered and unconscious, but alive. They were rushed to the hospital, but were unable to describe their assailant. Breaking into an apartment, the attacker clubbed J.B. Cole, her daughter, the daughter's friend, who was sleeping over. Police reported that the girls were partially undressed. An unnatural sex act was performed on the women before a neighbor arrived, drawn by the screaming, and put their assailant to flight. Hey, guess what? They were redheads. Of course they were. Now, uh, because these women didn't perish the person was interrupted during his attack he ran three blocks away from where this happened and a neighbor in the 100 block of east cameron street discovered the body of mrs ruth norton like the others she had been fatally bludgeoned in her bed some claims i have seen say that she was killed with a blunt end of an axe because of the crescent shaped indentions All of the victims had this indention when they say they were bludgeoned or whatever. All of them had these crescent-shaped indentions in their heads. Uh, And and this woman also had those indentions in her head. So did the women that survived. This woman, Ruth Norton, also a redhead. Four months before Benton gets out of prison. He's still in prison for Pantaloo's murder. The killer strikes while he's in prison. There were two Tulsa police detectives that hadn't had anything to do with the Benton case, or I should say the Pantaloo case. Their names were Bob Cleveland and Bud Caffey, C-A-F-F-E-Y. Yeah. So they worked on their own time and spent their own money investigating these killings because they saw some connections that other people weren't seeing. This time a witness came forward and offered police description of uh, the last woman's attacker, including a piece of advice that he looked like a truck driver. So a survey of local trucking companies revealed that Charles F. Floyd, no, not Pretty Boy Floyd. I know his his name is Charles Floyd too, but no, completely different Charles Floyd. He was a driver known for his obsession with redheads, had quit his job, On the morning of July 2nd, which was a day after these last attacks, he had been working at a junkyard just a block away from the last victim's home. Police broadcast descriptions, and on November 22nd, 1949, the detectives arrested Floyd in Dallas. 
He was later returned to Tulsa and taken to a room in a downtown hotel where he gave a detailed account of the Lyles murder to police in the presence of Tulsa World reporter Gilbert Asher. And Tulsa World, I got a lot of this from Tulsa World and Benton versus State. So, despite assertions of confusion, Floyd supplied detectives with substantial details of the crime known only to the killer and police. A lifelong peeping Tom, Floyd said that voyeurism sometimes failed to satisfy his cravings, and on those occasions he was moved to violence. In his confession, Floyd said on the night of May 15, 1945, he went to a movie, and after work, he walked back to where he had parked his truck near the intersection of Cheyenne Avenue and Easton Street, where Miss Lyle's apartment was located. Here's his confession. He said, I looked in a window, the shade was up, and I saw her standing there without any clothes on. I watched for a minute or two, and then she reached down and picked up a nightgown and put it on. He said he wanted to get into her apartment immediately, but he didn't have the nerve. For the next couple of hours, I thought of how she looked standing there naked. I couldn't get it out of my mind. About midnight, he said, he picked up a piece of pipe and put it into the side pocket on the leg of his overalls. He then picked up a piece of stiff wire to use to unfasten the window screen hook. He said he went back to the apartment and the light was off, but he could see her lying on the bed illuminated by a street light. He detailed how he entered the apartment and committed the crimes. He even described books and a framed photograph on her bedside table. Okay, we think we finally got the guy. We think we're, that these women are finally going to get justice, right? They gave him a psyche valve. And he was determined that he had a extremely low IQ, which saved him from the death penalty. And he was ruled mentally incompetent and committed to Eastern State Hospital in Veneta. So he didn't even go on trial. He died in that hospital in 1968. So technically, to this day, the crimes remain unsolved. Mm. That's the story of the Tulsa Northside killer. And there's this guy from Tulsa named J.D. McPherson, and he has a, a song called Northside Gal, and I will never hear that to sing again. <laughs> You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?